Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Sorry, the screen was a little dark there. Uh, with all the, the new light in here, it makes it hard to see dark screens. So, uh, but that's why we open up our Bibles and follow along as well. So if you, again, if you haven't, I'd encourage you. I want you to be able to look and see uh, where we're at in John 18. Um, we've been working through this series for a long time now, right? We started going through the Gospel of John uh, back at the beginning of this year, and we have faithfully worked through verse by verse and find ourselves now um, in some ways nearing that climax of the gospel uh, as we turn our attention to the final moments of Jesus' life. Um, back in uh, 2010, a new reality TV show aired on CBS, and if you were to try to take a stroll poll and guess on which one I'm talking about, um, you're probably familiar with it. It's the, the show Undercover Boss. Anybody heard of Undercover Boss? All right, so this show um, has its appeal because w what happens is they take one of the, the top high-level CEOs and they bring them down and throw them into uh, an entry-level uh, position where they're working with uh, low-level management and all those things, figuring out and kind of getting a taste for uh, how their policies are being implemented that they've made up top, right? Because we all, sometimes we understand that up top things make sense, and then you get down on the ground level, and it doesn't always uh, seem as great as it does on paper. And so these uh, people, these corporate bigwigs, these gurus get down and figure out what life um, down on the ground uh, looks like. And so they start rubbing shoulders with people. And uh, the show, you see all kinds of frustrations when they're having just a hard time uh, keeping up. And they do a good job of making good TV, right? Because they don't want to throw something at us that's going to be boring and dull. So they give us good TV. But the, the greatest part of those shows is the reveal, Right, because they don't send the big wigs down there just looking like themselves. They disguise them. They, you know, so they're wearing this. I'm not going to call it a costume, but uh, they're wearing a disguise, and so maybe they got a new mustache or something like that. And then there's finally this reveal where they go and they sit down with somebody that they've been rubbing shoulders with and reveal the fact that they are the CEO, or they're they're way up uh, in this business, and uh, I'm not so and so. Really, I am, and. What we're, we've seen and continue to see in John's Gospel in some ways, and I think we're going to uh, see this unpacked a bit today, is in, in some regard, Jesus is the greatest undercover boss that there ever is. Because right? as we've learned uh, all the way back in John chapter 1, Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. Right? What uh, Paul tells us in Philippians uh, is that Jesus humbled himself. Uh, even to the point of death, death on a cross, right? So you have uh, the deity of Christ humbled to take on flesh, humbled to dwell among us. And what we're going to see and have seen throughout his entire ministry is that though he took on flesh, he was never out of control. Jesus was never subject to somebody other than the Father. He was never caught off guard by things. Jesus always in the driver's seat. And we're going to see that so true in today's passage as well. So as we 
uh, meet this climax, if you will, of John's gospel, what everything's been building up to, right? Is uh, We've seen so many times, uh, the hour's not yet come, the hour's not yet come, and then Jesus finally, uh, after arriving in Jerusalem for the Passover feast, says to his disciples, the hour has come. And we've seen him uh, have this intimate conversation with them. And we spent a few weeks looking at his high priestly prayer. And now we are moving into what that hour is, right? Because to the guys that are following him, to those disciples, uh, they're still not altogether sure of what's to happen. And yet, as we look at a passage like this and try to put ourselves in the scene, if you will, Despite all the chaos, despite all the the frenzy of the moment, Jesus is always in control. He remains in total control. He is, if you would, in this scene, the undercover boss. While it may appear uh, from an earthly perspective, from a, a human perspective, that other people are pulling the right strings, that perhaps Judas pulled the string and, and now here everybody showed up to betray Jesus and to, to capture him and bring him in. Maybe you're looking at uh, the Roman soldiers as they've come in. They, they have the authority in the area. You're looking at the religious leaders. And we look at all these people and it might seem from an earthly perspective that they are in the driver's seat. And certainly to the disciples, they would have been feeling that way as well, coming with this whole crowd of people, uh, what's going on. But as we're going to see in these first uh, 14 verses of chapter 18, Jesus is the one who's in control. The Romans aren't. Judas isn't. The religious leaders aren't. Jesus is in control. And we're not talking the kind of control that maybe especially us guys can relate with when the world is falling apart around you and everyone starts to look at you and you say, don't worry, I got it, right? And we just kind of play it off and we roll with the punches. But the control that Jesus has isn't just composure in that moment. It's not just being able to roll with those punches and come up with plans on the fly. The control that Jesus is demonstrating is that all things are going according to plan. This was supposed to happen. This isn't a surprise. This, he's not just uh, coming up with a plan B and plan C on the fly. It's as if Jesus is saying, okay, and, and next, and next. He has designed all these events to happen as they were. And so as we work through this passage, like uh, if you remember Peter when uh, Jesus called him to walk on the water and he takes his eyes off the Savior and suddenly starts to flounder, we can, we can be tempted to perhaps do the same thing and take our eyes off of Jesus. And despite all the other characters and all the, the, the events that are happening here, if we as uh, faithful students of the Word keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, I think we're going to see what's really all at play here and be hopefully encouraged by all of it. So this morning, I want to focus on this idea of Jesus being in control. I think that's John's big emphasis here. John's purpose in writing his gospel is to convey uh, this truth that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is deity, right, in in all of this. And as we look at this uh, passage, he threads this idea that Jesus is in control, demonstrating it through and through, uh, despite the fact that the corruption of the world fights him. Here we've got uh, this band of soldiers, the, the group of the, the priests and the, the temple police coming, and you have Judas and all of these things uh, imagining. And I, I want you to put yourself in the scene for a minute. It's in the middle of the night, and you're out uh, with Jesus as uh, just a, a small group of people, and you're out in this garden, and it's quiet, and maybe uh, you hear the, the chirping of some crickets in the background. You've just had this moment with Jesus where he's telling you all these wonderful things, and you're left processing all of this. You've listened to him pray for you. 
And you're sitting there trying to soak all of this in. The moon's shining. Maybe a slight breeze. Then as you're sitting there, you start to hear what sounds like a group of people coming. And you look up and you see this crowd approaching you. And as they get closer and closer, you see the, the glimmer of light reflecting off of uh, the metal armor of soldiers. And you start to wonder what's going on. And as they approach, you realize that this crowd isn't coming to pay homage to Jesus. They're not coming to honor Him in any way. But these are bad dudes. And it's a big group of people. Most would estimate that this uh, crowd coming to see Jesus was probably at minimum a couple hundred people. So it's not like we gathered the group of us in this room and we're like, let's go find somebody. And we show up and we're like, hey, that might be intimidating enough. But a couple hundred Roman soldiers, the officers that are sent by the, the religious leaders, this would have caught your attention. And so then you kind of perk up a little bit and you start looking at Jesus. He's your teacher. He's your leader. What's he going to do? What's he going to tell us to do? What's about to happen? How do we respond? And so you keep your eyes on him, shifting back and forth between Jesus and this crowd, wondering what is at stake. And in some ways, you might be remembering back to just a few days earlier when you arrive in Jerusalem with Jesus expecting to be hated. And here the people are putting the, the palm branches down and their cloaks down. And it's, as the Pharisees said, look, the world has gone to Jesus. And in this moment, you're maybe remembering back to that and you're thinking, man, how the tables have turned. As if the world has now turned on them. You've got the Gentiles. You've got the, the Jews. You have all these people, even one of his own coming against him. The world has turned on Jesus. And so we look at that and recognize in some ways the corruption that's taking place. The corruption of this world, these, these conspiring parties, the Jews going to the Gentile. We don't know all that went on behind the scenes. We don't know how Judas went about getting a couple hundred Roman soldiers to come out there with him to capture Jesus. We don't know if that's even what he had in mind. But here they are, all of these people, and all of them coming, and we're reminded of John's statement in chapter 13, and it was night. And it was night. Can you feel the weight of the moment at hand? Perhaps the gospel reader would bring to mind the last time that some religious leaders came out and met Jesus in the night, back in John chapter 3, if you remember when Nicodemus comes under the cover of night to talk to Jesus. And Jesus tells him that this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You have them here at night not giving Jesus a fair trial. You have uh, the Jews working with the Romans. You've got the Romans at hand. You have the whole corruption of the world coming to fight back against Jesus, coming to take him out, if you will. And oftentimes, and let's be honest, when we live in those moments, when we live in those moments where it seems like the world's pushing back on Jesus, what's, what's our knee-jerk reaction? to fight back. Don't you want to defend? 
Aren't you a little offended at times when Jesus' name is drugged through the mud? When the world doesn't stand for the teachings of Jesus? Isn't there that knee-jerk reaction where you want to do something? You're like, I, I, how can I just sit here? I want, to, I want to act. And it can be easy for us to do something like that. Easy when the, the philosophies and preferences of the world come and they, they're smack in the face of, of what is the heart of our Savior. It can be easy to get agitated and aggravated with people when they don't see things the way that we do. And it can be easy to fight back against this world. But I wonder, I wonder if that's the idea. And we've seen those kind of things happen. I've seen those kind of things happen in recent days, right? When the world pushes back, when Christians push back. And in intellectual ways and verbally, we come and we attack the world. How could you? This isn't right. And we uh, turn things just into arguments. And at times, at times, even with the best of interests, we can turn things just into moralism. As if the message of the church becomes just be good people. Just do the right thing. And I wonder at times if the best intentions leave us forgetting that people's souls are at stake. Now, the best of intentions uh, leaves us forgetting that it's not just about winning an argument. It's not just about being right. It's not just about standing the strongest. It's about lost souls coming to salvation in Jesus Christ. That changes the way we interact. That changes the, the end game, the end goal. That it's not legalism. It's not moralism that the church is after. It's worship. The church isn't here to preach a gospel of be good. Do the right things. That's where the Jews were at. Do all the things that the law requires. And they missed it. They missed it. The church is here to preach a gospel of worship. Worship that comes only by being redeemed, recognizing that we are sinful, we have fallen, we cannot be good as the Bible defines good in our own strength. That comes only from Christ. But even these responses to, to push back and fight aren't unique to us today. Peter lived it, didn't he? Here they come, and you got to, in some ways, wonder what's going through Peter's head. Because if you try to put yourself in that scene, it's one thing to try to fight back when it's a handful of men. But when there's 200 minimum Roman soldiers standing in front of you, you wonder what's going through the guy's head that he thinks with his little dagger, he's going to go and make a difference right now. But consumed with that passion, I, I can't knock the guy, he acts. And we're reminded that even in the midst of our own confusion, and when our confusion fails Jesus and fails the mission that we've been called to, the mission of what He was about, that He had come to accomplish, Jesus is still in control. Just because Peter lost it a little bit and stepped out of line does not mean that Jesus was taken back. Doesn't mean that He was shocked. Doesn't mean that He was surprised at all these things happening. But this will take place, and it's happened probably for each of us, when we too have confused the mission at times. That in that moment, as Peter looks at these guys coming to take Jesus, missing in some ways the whole thing that Jesus just talked about, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to the Father, he fights back. 
And he steps out of line with that mission, and, and we're going to do the same thing. The church as a whole, us as individuals, will step out of line at times. This isn't to come and knock on us. This is the reality that, that we have a finite understanding of things. We don't always see and understand the full picture. We're living in the moment. We're living with, with emotions. We're not uh, perfected creatures yet. We still are fallen. We're prone to sin. We're prone to wander. And in many ways, I look at this as a great encouragement for us. That when we do step out of line, it's not going to jeopardize what Jesus is all about. He's in control. He's in control of all things. Now, I recognize for some of us that that reality that we're going to step out of line is a paralyzing fear. Because I know for some, the thought of screwing up is terrifying. And so it's easier in some ways to sit back and do nothing than to, to take that step and worry that you're going to take the wrong step do the wrong thing and to fail Jesus. And so we sit back and twiddle our thumbs and say, we'll let somebody else step out and do something. I'm going to be honest with you. Even in that paralyzing fear, we can fail Jesus. Because we've not been called to sit on the sidelines. We've not been called to just sit back and watch other people. We've not been called to sit back and do nothing. We've been called to be the body of Christ, to engage with the world, to do the ministry that's been put before us. So I encourage you, whether you're the, the Peter who's like, yeah, I'm just going to go, and I, if I screw up, I'll ask for forgiveness, and that's going to be fine. Or whether you're the person who's like, nah, I'm going to sit back and let Peter do his thing and let him take the punches for it, and I'm going to do nothing. All of us need to recognize that there will be times where we fail the mission. But all of us need to be reminded that Jesus is gracious when we do. How easy could it have been in our small group, someone said this week, man, it's always Peter. It's always Peter, right? How many times have we seen, and Peter did, and Peter did, and Peter did, right? And how easy could it have been in some ways for Jesus to sit back and be like, listen, you've screwed up one too many times, I'm taking you off the roster. I'm benching you, dude. But he didn't do that. Our Lord is so gracious to us that we'll trip up will stumble, but he has a great plan. So, little point of application. If you're sitting here today and you're that person who's like, I would rather not screw up, teach yourself. Remind yourself that there is freedom in Christ. Freedom to uh, take that step. Freedom to follow. Freedom to move. That you're not going to get shunned or kicked out of God's kingdom just because you make a little mistake. Our Lord is gracious. If you're the person who's uh, quick to act and slower to, you're quick to act and ask for forgiveness later, also be reminded that while there's freedom, it's not a license to just be irresponsible and unchecked. Paul tells us in Romans that we are slaves now to righteousness. Now, as part of that, we ought to exercise self-control. I don't know about you guys, but I think the two are good for each other. If you're married, how similar are you to your spouse? 
Isn't it kind of the, the old adage that opposites attract? The two completely opposite people somehow end up together and you balance each other in this weird thing called marriage and it just kind of works sometimes. Isn't it a beautiful thing? I wonder if in the church, if having the Peters and the people who like to sit back isn't a good balance for each other. That maybe some of the Peters need to encourage all of us to be moving and doing stuff and not being so scared and to take leaps and steps of faith. And I wonder if the other side says, listen, we need to think through some stuff here. Let's process this. Let's, let's spend some time in prayer before we go and do something uh, willy-nilly. I wonder if they're not good for both. Jesus is in control. Despite the world fighting him, despite our confusion at times failing him, Jesus is in complete control. I want to look at some areas this morning in our passage where we see this control manifested, where we see it on display. Number one, we see it in Jesus' decisions. We see his control and his decision. Look at the beginning of our passage. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now get verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now, you could start to ask a bunch of questions, say, well, maybe Jesus didn't know that Judas was going to betray him. And I would rewind a little bit in the gospel and find out that no, Jesus really did. He knew exactly what Judas was doing. And he said, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And so then you start to ask the question, man, was Jesus completely disconnected with reality? Like, if he knew Judas was going to betray him, why would he go to the one place where he will be found out? Of all the places in Jerusalem right now, with all the, the crowds of people, the, the more than two million people that have probably come for this feast, you'd think that a, a guy with some of his followers could hide somewhere back in a corner and kind of stay out of sight. But instead, Jesus goes to the one place that he's taken his disciples repeatedly, and Judas knows all about it. Do you think that's a coincidence? I kind of think it isn't. I kind of think that in his decision to go there, Jesus knew exactly what was happening. In his decision to go to that garden, that familiar place with his disciples, surely that's going to be where Judas might look for him. Jesus is in control. And we've seen examples of uh, Jesus uh, in his decisions being in control of what's going on all throughout the gospel. And we've seen it uh, in our theology class, right, as we looked over the past few weeks at different things that Jesus has done. He has a purpose with all he's doing. In John's gospel, we're reminded of when Jesus went through Samaria with his disciples, the big no-no for the Jews. You don't go through Samaria, but he had a purpose, it wasn't happenstance that Jesus ran into the woman at the well. He was in control. It's not coincidence that Jesus found himself out in a desolate place with a crowd of 5,000 plus people to feed. He was in control. All throughout the gospel, Jesus has been in control, and we see that with his decisions. Number two, we see it in his disposition. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Verse four, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? 
Can you wrap your head around that for a second? Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, peacefully steps forward. Who are you guys looking for? I mean, dude, they make movies and write books about people with that kind of bravery and courage. To stand in the face of what would be great suffering and to stand boldly. And Jesus steps forward and willingly puts himself out there. Who are you looking for? He doesn't flee. He doesn't run off. He doesn't hide. He doesn't start some scene and make chaos to try to get out of there. Jesus steps forward and says, it's me. It's me. Which, hand in hand with that, we see his, uh, his control with his declaration. Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. We're told that Judas is there with them. In verse 6, and this is, I mean, let's try to put this in our minds. Uh, When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back and fell to the ground. Don't you kind of wish that John would have elaborated a little bit more on that? Like, what happened? What happened there? Why did hundreds of men step back and fall over? Like, was it they got knocked over? Was it that they bowed down? Was it... What's going on here? Why is it that these men, when Jesus says, I am, would fall over? And in some sense, to the Jews, it might make sense that I am, literally that's all Jesus says, I am, ego me. So to the Jewish people, they would be like, oh, this guy's proclaiming to be the I am, thinking back to, to Moses, I am, I am. He's claiming to be God. And they could, the Jews could have certainly been shocked. Maybe they would have stepped back but to fall over even. And then you start to think, well, what about the hundreds of Roman soldiers? They wouldn't give uh, one care if Jesus claims to be God or not. So in this declaration, while we don't know exactly what happened, what we do know is this, that in some way, Jesus' glory was put on display. We're not sure if it was some sort of theophany that uh, suddenly the, the, the fullness of his glory flashed before them and it took them back. We're not sure if there was just a sudden awareness that they had that they're standing in the, in the presence of deity. We don't fully know, but his glory was on display. His glory was absolutely on display. And the fact that hundreds of men just stepped back and fell to the ground And Jesus still comes forth willingly. As if sending this message, you're not taking me on your terms. I'm going with you. Remember Jesus said, I have the authority to lay down my life and to raise it up again. Guys, Jesus is not just a victim in this scene. He's not just a victim in the final hours of his life. Jesus is laying his life down, clearly in his own authority. Not subject to the powers of man, but in his own power, in his own wisdom, in his own strength. And then you start to wonder if, man, perhaps because of this display of glory, maybe that's a little bit of why uh, Peter got a little rambunctious and went and cut off somebody's ear. He just watched all these men fall over when Jesus said, I am. He's like, okay, we can take these guys. Let's go. 
Because clearly Jesus has the power. Jesus is the one with the authority. Jesus is the one with the might. He is the one who's in control all along. Next, we see his authority and his control in his directions. In his directions. Two times Jesus gives directions to other people in this instance. And kind of related to uh, that display of his glory, he, he says to them, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Now, I ask you the question, how many times have you seen the captive get to dictate the terms of their captivity? You're looking for me, so let them go, and they're all fine with it. Now you start to think through the lines. If they're really wanting to squash what Jesus is all about, why would they let the closest of his followers who have spent years with him go? If they really want to squash this thing, you think they'd take Jesus and take the guys with him. Done. Blot him out. It's over. But Jesus says, let these guys go. And you know what's crazy? The hundreds of Roman soldiers do it. They answer to Jesus. That's wild to wrap your head around. Jesus is in control. We see it uh, with Peter. Uh, Dude, put your sword away. Put it in its sheath. This is not how we're doing this. And he, he teaches him and says, listen, there's a mission at stake. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father's given me? Put your sword away. Not the time, not the place. That's not what we're about right now. And so uh, in his directions to other people, we see that Jesus is in control. And finally, we see it with his dedication. We see it with uh, what he says uh, to Peter. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? We see it uh, down when we, uh, John talks about Caiaphas. Bringing all these things back together. Reminding us of uh, back when Caiaphas said, uh, isn't it better that one man die than the whole nation. We are thankful today that Jesus was dedicated to fulfilling the mission that the Father had set before him. Thankful today that he didn't back out, that he didn't do something else, but he was faithful and obedient. In this moment, knowing all that would happen to him, Every whip, every word, every hammer of the nail, and every breath. The isolation of being forsaken by the Father, knowing all that would happen to him, he went forward. So we praise him for that. And we are grateful that despite all of these things, he was committed to the cross, who for the joy set before him. Guys, that joy wasn't all the suffering. That joy is what would come as a result of the cross. You, me, us, and the whole host of believers that have come before us and will come after. His church. His bride. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he is now seated.
the right hand of the throne of God. So I want to close and leave you with this passage that Paul gives us in Philippians chapter 2. Remembering that Jesus is in control when the world fights against him, when we fail him, as we look to all that the scriptures have taught us, that there is never a moment where there's one iota that is out of place. What do we do? What do we do? We walk in obedience. Paul tells us, Philippians chapter 2, he writes, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Doesn't get much more straightforward than that. Do all things without grumbling and complaining, clinging to the hope of life that we have, shining in the midst of a wicked and crooked generation. So let us submit to the will of our Father in heaven. Let us become humble to do what he has called us to, the ministry that he's put before us, that we might worship him in our lives, and that perhaps we have the great blessing of seeing others come to worship him as a result. To him be the glory in all things. Amen?